one thing I find kind of interesting about this episode is I like this episode. They might be looking at me like, well, why is that significant? <laughs> Two points. Number one, uh, the gentleman who was working on this episode, which I'll talk about in a second, was very disappointed with it. In fact, he was on record as saying this is the only episode he was really disappointed with in all of season five. A very strong season overall, I might add, except for the episodes which are face-palmingly blah, which I've pointed out. But this was the one that disappointed him. The next point, though, and this is really what catches me, in all of Voyager, when it came out, so, you know, when the episode went live, the ratings, the Nielsen ratings for this episode, the viewing ratings, were the lowest for this episode out of every episode in Voyager. Now, obviously, that's not really indicative. And if you go back, there's several sites that keep track of viewer. Uh, basically, there, there's a way to vote in. Uh, fans of the show can vote in and say, this is the episode I like, this is the episode I dislike. And it rates it out, and you've got this list here. I've talked about this list before. Threshold is right at the bottom. Um, and Juggernaut is not right at the bottom of that list. But it's really weird to me, and I feel like there was probably something else going on at the time that contributed to that, because, uh, yeah. <laughs> then again, what do I know? It's not like my tastes are congruent with everyone else's, but I like this episode. Uh, Roxanne Dawson also liked this episode. She felt it was a really good exploration of her character, which is interesting uh, for two reasons. One positive, one negative. I'll get to those later, of course. So the gentleman I mentioned earlier is someone that, like I said, I'll be mentioning more uh, and probably more and more as we get through the rest of Star Trek, especially when we get to the TNG and uh, DS9 stuff. Nick Sagan is a gentleman who uh, did some work in this episode and, again, was the gentleman who was disappointed by this episode. Um, that's funny to me, because this episode has Nick Sagan's fingerprints all over it. If I might diverge for a second. One thing that you get kind of get is a feel for someone's fingerprints, for lack of a better term, when it comes to writing. And if you've analyzed and examined and watched and rewatched something for a while, you kind of get a feel for it. A, a good example is Chris Avalone. No idea if I'm pronouncing his name right. It might be Avalone. Uh, anyways, the, the ex-Obsidian writer. He has a very distinct style of writing, and it's pretty easy to determine uh, what, what things he has worked on and what things he has written. Um, similarly, here on Star Trek, Brennan Braga has a very distinct style. Go ahead, insert your jokes here if you want. But there are several things that are very Braga in terms of writing. And there are some things that are very Joe Manoski in terms of writing. And there are some things that are very Nick Sagan in terms of writing. In, ter in the case of Nick Sagan, and I actually wish I would brought this up before because there's been a few other episodes that do this, he tends to make interesting backdrops. Um, in this episode, we actually get more insight into Malon culture than in any other episode that has featured them. This is the last Malon episode, by the way. And yet, through this simple task, we actually see the beginnings, the, the outer edges of a culture, of an actual society back there. That is very Nick Sagan. He doesn't usually sit down and actually make an entire fleshed-out idea. But he usually gives you a glimpse of it, just enough so you start thinking about it. Very him. But I'll get to that. So let's go ahead and go down the list here. I don't have a lot of notes for this episode. The Malon ship being this far out is a little head-scratching. It can be explained. It is possible to explain it in the fact that they found another wormhole, basically, that leads out in this direction, and therefore that's, you know, that's, what, uh, that's how they could be this far out. But try and keep in mind, Voyager has had several instances of being flung forward, uh, including the transwarp drive and a few other things, since they last encountered the Malon. Uh, someone did the math, I forget what it is, but they are about 20 years 
distance in terms of normal travel from where they used to be. So either the Malon are way faster uh, drives than we thought, or again, there's another wormhole or something. Or it could just be a continuity gaffe, which is, in all honesty, the most likely answer. Um, another thing I want to say about this episode really quick, you can kind of tell... But they do a good job of it. The director does some nice stuff with the fog in this episode, the green fog, and helps to disguise this ship and gives it this very uh, wonderfully oppressive atmosphere, um, which is really well done. In fact, it's funny because Balana mentions how the ship was getting to her. I like that for two reasons. The, the obvious occupational hazards that I keep referencing throughout the episode are obvious. You know, you're working around theta radiation, your long-term exposure, death, etc. You know, duh, right? But the thing I like most about this episode... Uh, well, that's a lie. But the thing I like most about that aspect of this episode is the fact that there is a, another aspect of working on this, this ship, the psychological occupational hazards, the stress, to put it just bluntly. Here in real life, I've been a champion of this topic, so forgive me for going on to this a little bit, but here in real life, some people think to th seem to think if you're doing a job where you aren't literally breaking your back and getting cut and in physical danger all the time, emphasis on physical, then you have an easy job because you don't have to be out there doing real work. Now, I appreciate real work as much as the next guy. In fact, I actually enjoy uh, you know, doing, you know, working with my hands, basically. You know, I've, I've worked on a farm. Uh, I usually do, you know, my own lawn work and that kind of a stuff. I enjoy getting out and working on the car, you know, that kind of a thing. I enjoy that kind of a thing. But to imply that any work that isn't, you know, physically strenuous isn't real work is elitist at best and negligently stupid at worst, in my opinion. <laughs> I have to add that asterisk. Because... I've always been the person who thinks that mental and emotional stress can actually be, can, I want to stress that, under the right circumstances, can actually be worse than physical stress. Now, yes, yeah, some people obviously, you know, have both under certain jobs. And indeed, on the Malon Freighter, we have both in spades. But my point is that they bother to bring out the mental stress in addition to the physical stress, rather than just, you know, you're, you're working in radiation, but it's just another day. No, there's the constant oppressive atmosphere. There's the strain, there's the stress, there's the knowledge that you're probably going to die, there's the, the, you know, all that fun stuff. There's a lot of aspects to it that help to uh, flesh out both sides of the coin, and I like that. Um, I also kind of want to talk about that in a minute. So let's talk about Bellana. So before I get into anything else... It kind of bothered me how Bellana just kind of reverts four seasons for the beginning part of this episode. We have actually seen a decent amount of Bellana's character arc, and indeed, there's uh, I'd say two scenes in this episode which are very Bellana, uh, where she is now. But then every other other scene, she is needlessly, unnecessarily aggressive and actively rude in the way that she tries to provoke others into a fight. Now. In the interest of fairness, everyone has bad days. You know, I do, you do. We all have a day where it's just... You know? So it is entirely possible Bellana was just having a bad day. But it felt odd from a television perspective to show Bellana, who hasn't really had a lot of major episodes devoted to her in the last you know, string of episodes, and all of a sudden she's acting like she's back in season one. It felt like an odd shift there. It, again, it's one of those, it can be explained, but it really probably should have been smoothed out a little bit better. At the very least, they should have explained why she's having a bad day. In fact, if I could be so bold, you remember the episode where she and Tom finally get together the worst day of her life? You remember that episode? 
it was way back. Uh, well, actually, I guess it wasn't that far back. But anyways, that episode had her having a terrible day with lots of things going wrong, and she was not acting this needlessly antagonistic. I'm just, I'm not saying it's stupid. I'm just, I'm just showing my work here and why I feel the way I do. I really think they could have done this better. However, overall, I like what they did with Balan in this episode. Ignoring that, and there's two big reasons why. Well, three big reasons why. Number one, the interaction with Tuvok was actually pretty good in my opinion. First of all, he treats her with a surprising amount of respect other than the one obvious thing. Uh, granted, him provoking her probably was not the right thing to do at that exact point in time. However, he was right. His entire point in doing that, with a completely calm and normal tone, was to show how easy it is for her to be provoked. How such a little thing that wasn't even meant seriously, that he was saying just to provoke her, provoked her. And that was his point. And he was trying to make a point with that, and I get that. But he probably should have timed that a little bit better. But I do like the fact that at the beginning of the episode, Balana's there with the meditation and says... Uh, and, and Tuvok's there, and Tuvok makes a point of, of, you know, talking to her about her anger and about her emotion. And he showcases through his words and what he's telling her, there is a positive side to emotion and a negative side. And it calls back to the episode um, Gravity, I believe it was. We looked at this just a few weeks ago. Where uh, in the flashbacks when Tuvok was a child, the elder Vulcan tells him, why would I deny my emotions? They are a useful tool. It would be illogical to deny that I have emotions. What I want to do is control my emotions. And that's kind of what Tuvok is trying to impart upon her. So he shows her, you know, your, your anger has been a positive thing in the past. And more recently, it has been a negative thing. Hence, control. And that is a very logical tact to take for him. I like that. That was a good scene. Um, I'll, I'll get to the rest of... I'll, I'll get to the rest of that in a minute. Um... So, then they get inoculated against radiation. I hate to bring this up again, but really? Do you know what radiation does to living tissue? To anything, really, but living tissue especially? The idea of getting inoculated against radiation is, is, is just so ridiculous that it bothers me every time it happens. I, they even make a point saying this, this injection will make sure your cells will reject radiation. What? Just letting it go. I do like at least the fact that it's a temporary, it's a band-aid fix. You know, it's not just you're immune to radiation. So at least they did that. That That is nice. Uh, I would also like to give some odd praise to the Dilemma of the Week. This is a unique episode for Voyager's uh, run because there's no A plot or B plot. There is just the one plot. There is only the main plot, and it centers around Bolana and I can't think of his name, the, the head Malon captain, and the dilemma that they are both facing. And I like it. It, it. it all gels with each other very smoothly and, and is a very, narrat uh, very coherent nar narrative. But the thing I like about the dilemma of the week is it's not a dilemma to the ship. Voyager's in no danger. Not really. The dilemma is we have to save all the other people around here. We have to save the other ships in the sector and any other life that might be in the sector and ensuring the sector doesn't become a radiated wasteland. We are trying to prevent a, a volcano from exploding on a bunch of villages, not saving our own skin. And I like those kind of dilemmas because A, it's a nice break from the ship is in danger, and B, it makes more sense for it being a dilemma. When you have the level of technology or power or magic or whatever that is just demonstrated by the protagonists like they do on Voyager, it is actually difficult as a writer to come up with something that challenges them. One of the best ways I've always felt to challenge someone who is very capable is to give them an alternate objective 
that I, I mean is way way harder to accomplish because they are limited in how they can accomplish it they cannot use all of their technology all their magic all their power whatever in order to solve this alternate objective but it's optional basically like is in other words if voyager just wanted to survive this would be a five minute episode okay we're done we're gone we'll hide the nebula we're good but they don't they want to stop the thing from exploding and, and destroying half the sector right so that optional objective now requires them to go and do things that they can't just do. They can't just solve with all the technology. They have to work through the problem rather than around it. So good writing on that part. And, I, and that's why I like this Dilemma of the Week. It's very well constructed. Um, I also like Neelix getting a little bit more character spotlight in this episode. Um, I've said it before. I like Ethan Phillips, and I really wish they would do better stuff with Neelix, and I think this is a good example of doing something better with Neelix. He's actually a pretty nice uh, aspect of this episode, and rather than being a blathering idiot, he's pretty much along the wrong for the right. In fact, one of the things I thought, I have looked into this, I couldn't find anything specific, but I was wondering if this was actually an inside joke into the, the writers making fun of themselves, basically, or their predecessors, I should say. Because there's a thing where Neelix tastes something, and it's the most disgusting food ever. He has to literally fight back his gag reflex to eat something he has cooked. Now, that's not it. It's not a Neelix is a bad cook joke. He is actually specifically making a, uh, a, a home remedy, basically, to help push back against radiation. The fact that it would be this disgusting mess actually makes perfect sense because that's not going to be something that is just normally edible. It's going to be this horrible mix mismatch, mismatch of uh, of different terrible compounds that could help fortify the body. That makes perfect sense. And so I actually really liked that scene. I also liked the fact that it makes perfect sense that you would want to additionally fortify yourself. By which I mean... Rather than just saying, I'm going to get a hypospray and I'm fine, Neelix says, I'm going to get a hypospray and do my home remedy. And I want to give props to Neelix for that because he's the only one who thought about that. He's the only one who had a backup plan, who had, a, had, had a, an additional thing in order to help protect him from theta radiation, for God's sakes. Everyone else just, yeah, hypospray, we're done. And I hate to point this out, but Chakotay wasn't on the ship the whole time. And Neelix, so that just leaves uh, Neelix, the Malon freighter captain, and Balana. Balana showed signs of radiation poisoning. She had to have a special injection. The Malon freighter captain had a lethal dose and will slowly deteriorate. And Neelix was fine. Just pointing it out. So props to Neelix for having a frickin' brain. Anyways, um... Uh, I also really like the scene between Tom and Bellana as they're going down the corridor as she's heading out to the ship. It's it felt perfectly natural, and that's what I like about it. It's not special. It's not over dramatic. It's not melodramatic. It's just two couples who are concerned about each other. She's having a bad day, but they don't get into an argument. It looks like at first the scene is structured so she's going to yell at him and create some artificial drama, but he smooths right over that, and he showcase and as much as he's still being kind of the smarmy Tom Par Paris kind of person, you could see that he's basically just there because he cares about her. And she recognizes that, and there's that genuine connection, and please be careful over there, yada yada. Good scene. I, I, my viewers often make fun of me because I tend to be anti-romance in my preference in fiction. But that's not really true, as I've said many times. I am anti-badly written romance, or badly acted romance, or whatever. When I see two, ca two characters on a screen or on a video game or whatever who, who I, I can actually feel like they're a genuine couple, they have a relationship rather than are screwing buddies or whatever, 
or rather than you know it, it automatically pushing two characters together just makes drama or interest or whatever but when you actually make a real relationship on the screen i'm okay with that and this is a great example of that and of course i ever like to point to o'brien and keiko as the other example of two characters who have a relationship on screen anyways uh, so then we got the dumb like, uh, one of the things I like, okay, so, I, 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 no, I, I started that sentence wrong. There's a good scene between Seven and Tuvok where, uh, Tuvok's like, and she's like, plan A, blah, 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 and he's like, okay, plan B, blah, 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 and he starts to turn, plan C, is there a plan D? You know, good scene. But I have to point this out because it's my job. So you know how I mentioned that the Seven learns a lesson thing is going to just kind of be a thing for a while? So in this episode, in the middle of everything else, Seven learns a lesson about luck in this episode. In that scene, where, where she's like, I, you know, I just... And it's so clearly constructed like that, just so she has that Seven learns a lesson bullet point that needs to be in every episode. Well, not every episode, but way too many of them. I just felt like pointing it out, because I have to. Um... I also okay. So let let's skip forward a bunch. You notice I'm not talking about the mainline yet. I want to leave that for last. So towards the end of the episode, she encounters the uh, old core worker, right? The core laborer, and she tries to reason with him, and that fails miserably. So she beats him to death, basically. Now call me weird, but I like what they did with that for two reasons, or maybe fifty reasons, something like that. Whatever. Um. Reason number one, diplomacy doesn't always work. That's actually something that I feel Mass Effect 2 got along really well as well. Uh, but I'm not explaining myself properly. What I mean is diplomacy can always work. Well, okay, I'm still saying this wrong. Diplomacy should not be linear. Bingo, there we go. I figured out how to say it. In other words, I should not use one method of diplomacy for everyone. I should not try to approach everyone with calm, reasonable words. That'll work for a lot of people but it won't work for everyone. Sometimes, again, Mass Effect 2, you need to headbutt a Krogan to get your point across. Sometimes you need to be a renegade to be diplomatic. Because diplomatic means reaching out to a person in a way that, that and fosters cooperation. And so you have to reach out to them in a way they understand. So I like the fact that she reaches out in the classic Starfleet manner. I'm on your side, reasonability, you know, re all that kind of a thing. And it doesn't work. Because it shouldn't. This is a person who is basically out of his mind, uh, more or less literally. And so she then has to resort to violence in order to bring him down and save the crew. And that was the correct decision in that moment. So I like that a lot. The second reason I like it is because it, it's a nice bookend to the episode, even though it's not at the end of the episode. Early on, we saw that Tuvok showed Balana the positive and negative sides of anger. In that scene, we see directly the positive and negative sides of anger. His is the negative side. He is furious and angry, and he just wants to hurt and kill and destroy. He wants to kill all those people in the sector, kill everyone else on the ship, kill his own crew. Clearly negative side of anger. She calls upon her anger to beat him to death, which is a positive side of anger because it saves her crew. Hurt the three of them that are left, and everyone in the sector enables them to get out and save the day. Nice touch there. Very well constructed. 
Um, I want to add one thing before we get into the, the, the Nick Sagan thing I want to talk about. When I saw this episode most recently, prior to today, obviously, I'm talking about like four years ago. I was at, we're getting at standard. As I mentioned, I used to watch shows a lot when I was working because, uh, you know, it's really boring to just be uh, typing away and doing stuff without some kind of music or video or something. So anyway, so I, while I was watching this the most recent time, I remember thinking, no, why? Why would you do this? Like, this this episode was really the beginning of that, but there's going to be several episodes in the upcoming seasons that give me that exact same impression. Because what we have here is the perfect jump point into a character arc. We have the perfect launch point for this to have consequence, for us to have that forbidden thing, continuity, to have this matter in future episodes. The way the episode ended really resonated with me. She goes in, and she's just exhausted, mentally and emotionally drained, physically drained, of course, because theta radiation. And as she's saying this, she she flashbacks to her beating the man to death, and she gets in the shower and, and tries to get everything washed off of her to cleanse herself. That is just a perfect launch point into a new arc. You don't even have to have it be a primary arc. Have it have it a subtext. Have it have it be her character developing over the next few episodes or season even. But this will never be mentioned again. And, ah, it's God, why? You know, you had it, you had it. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about is the Malon. Again, Nick Sagan's blueprints are all, or fingerprints are all over this. So we have the Malon, seeing the Malon in action from their perspective was really a good touch, in my opinion. The fact that they literally have built, like, this Malon ship doll, and they're talking about giving it to his son and all that kind of stuff, helps to showcase that these are not all terrible bastards like the gentleman we saw all the way back in Night, for example. So, first of all, a nice graying out of the species a bit. Good good step. The fact that they actually care about their children and whatnot also helps add to that. But the next thing is that the Malon actually describes... The Malon captain, I can't remember his name, describes his homeworld. That was a great touch because, there again, it's just a, it's a window into this into this much more complicated idea. He talks about this beautiful, amazing homeworld. He talks about how when he goes home, he is a sculptor. And he tells her in blunt terms, I give up a job I love and I care about so that I can come out here and lower my lifespan in order to get this money back home and take care of my people. And and again, the fact that a core, work, core laborer who makes a ridiculous amount of money and the fact that they have a huge fatality rate, a 70% fatality rate for being a core laborer, is that just speaks volumes for the way these people work. But not only that, that's interesting in its own right. But if these were Ferengi, that would be the end of it. Just, oh, go work, and if you die, oh well. But these are not Ferengi. As I mentioned before, these are the Ferengi done properly. Because those core laborers, when they die, the money they were going to make for that mission goes to their family. And that by itself says everything about why anyone would volunteer to be core laborer. Speaking as someone who has a family, I would volunteer in a heartbeat to be a core laborer, even knowing I am very likely to die, and I am guaranteed to be lowering my lifespan by a considerable amount, because one way or another, I am guaranteed to have my family set up for life, basically. They are good. I have taken care of my people. Done. Done deal. That says so much about these people. That says there's so much to, that it can be extrapolated on. There's so much that could be built upon that. It's such a shame this is the last we see the mail on. I'm wondering if the mail on are in STO. 
again, I still haven't gone to the Delta Quadrant. I haven't had time. Um, but uh, I, I, I love that that little peak. But then the other peak is how he, again, so he mentions how the homeworld is this beautiful, wonderful place. Um, this is a classic one below situation. I'm, I'm not explaining myself properly. Technological progress follows a pattern. This is this is true in real life, but this has been extrapolated on into fiction, and it is it is argued that we will follow the same pattern here in real life. Uh, we don't know, of course. There's always random variables and, and sudden boosts and sudden losses and whatnot. But the idea remains the same. Um, not to quote Isaac Asimov or anything like that. Uh, the idea here is, you when you reach, just to put it bluntly, Star Trek's level of technological progression, Earth specifically, Star Trek, Starfleet. Um, you are at not you're not only at a post scarcity society you have enough technology to master the environment rather than to exploit the environment to move with it to work with it you have sufficient understanding of how it works to allow, to 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 maintain it and support it but also control it I have actually talked about this several times. In fact, in my Kingdom Hearts lore, one of all places, I talked about that concept when it came to Radiant Garden, that that, that impression was given across throughout it, the level of advancement they had reached. So they're at that level, but right below that level is the level at which you have the ability to make... You're not at a post-scarcity, so resources are still a concern, and you're at a point where you can make things nice segmentedly. So you can make this wonderful... So in the Malon's case, their entire homeworld is this beautiful, wonderful place. But the cost for that, because they haven't gone one step up yet, because they haven't advanced that far, the cost for that is a ridiculous environmental pollution, a ridiculous amount of backwater and waste, and probably resource consumption as well. I mean, I could go into the economics of this, but I'm not going to. Um, take a drink. Um, so... Uh, so the idea of, of this this being an unnecessary, oh, I shouldn't say necessary, but, but a current uh, logical progression of where they're at with their society, I, I, I love that. I eat that up. That's so cool that they have this culture that's just expanded on in a couple of lines and a couple of scenes. Again, very Nick Sagan. Uh, I could literally have done most of this episode just talking about the Malon culture that's implied in that. In fact, there's another note. Hang on, where is it? Um, where's my other note here? Uh, give me a moment. Oh, there it is. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention is the idea that... The idea that these people do this... There's an implication there that this is not a common job. I mean, yes, they probably have a decent amount of waste export and whatnot, but that's not what I mean. I mean, of the, shall we say, six billion, just to do as a random number... Uh, people, I imagine there's probably only a few thousand people working on these freighters. Maybe, maybe in the 10,000 range. So in other words, in this society of beautificness and wonder and culture and all that fun stuff, only a few thousand people are really raking in the money by sacrificing their time and their lives in order to constantly keep this waste export. And there's one tiny little line, too, that I love. Do you know how hard we work to find places where we can dump this? I liked that. I liked that a lot. That really, really helped to emphasize the how arduous and how strenuous and how difficult and how elite these jobs are. This guy, 
he is at the upper level of the economy of his of his people in my opinion the because of the expertise required and because of the rare nature of his job i do you i mean for god's sakes i just mentioned earlier if i was offered a core laborer job done right how many other people would take that job i imagine it's a large number and yet again, as I mentioned earlier, let's assume, just to be nice, let's assume there's about 10,000 workers. So of those, there are five, give me just a little bit to do the math, that would be uh, about 5% of that. So we're, th we're talking about eh, maybe uh, 500 core laborers on the planet. So 500 people get that job. Do you know what kind of a, a waiting list that's got to have? And of course, you, I can't even imagine what's required to work for it. You think it's hard getting a job here in real life. Try to get a job that well-paying and that, well, I shouldn't say prestigious, but you know that necessary, that uh, elite, basically, because of, because of the feudum. You get my point. And again, all of this is extrapolation. All of this is interpretation. I don't know if any of this is true. But that's my point. It's so interesting. I really wish we could see more of the Malon culture. But I'm done. I'm done talking about cultures and whatnot. For now, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. What's our next episode? Oh, jeez. I just talked about romance. Whatever. I'll see you next time, guys.